0: This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, a weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future, right here on The Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community right here in Baltimore. And also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today, Mother Jones food and agricultural writer Tom Philpott joins us to tell the story of a bee-killing pesticide that the federal courts disallowed the EPA from approving. And we learn about an event coming up that's hosted by Days of Taste, a program that introduces schoolchildren to healthy food in creative ways. That's all coming up a little later in the program. But first, we speak to a really extraordinarily interesting man. When we talk to fermentation revivalist and author of the book Wild Fermentation, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, and most recently The Art of Fermentation,
1: Sandra Alex Katz.
0: You do a lot of traveling.
1: It's true. I do a, an awful lot of traveling. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so how can you ferment when you travel so much? <laughs>
1: um, well, I mean, you know, the, na- teasing, but... the, the nature of fermentation is, you know, you you set these things up and then um, they're doing their thing. And for the most part, you know, you don't need to be there to to, to help them. And, you know, they need a little checking in on once in a while. Uh, on this trip, I'm gone for for nine days. Um, but, uh Um, But it's true. I mean, the amount of traveling I do definitely limits, um, you know, the range of what kinds of ferments I can um, actually be making.
0: I'm going to ask you about that again, but I I think – let me just take a step backwards. I think fermentation is something that people hear about. But when you pick up yogurt or if you pick up certain meats and sourdough breads and other things, you don't – pickles. The word fermentation doesn't come in your head
1: right well i mean you know what the most part what what foods come into people's heads when they think fermentation i've learned varies quite a bit uh-huh. um but but you know what we're talking about when we're talking about fermented foods and beverages are foods and beverages that are produced by the action of microorganisms um and you know a huge uh, range of the foods that you know most people eat every day are produced by fermentation um you know you know, one one scholar of fermentation actually has estimated that one third of all food and beverages that human beings put into our mouths are transformed by fermentation before uh, wow. uh, b- before we ingest them. And you know some examples of um, you know common foods found in the you know standard American diet would be coffee bread, cheese, cured meats, um, all the condiments we might put on that sandwich, uh, pickles, sauerkraut, uh, kimchi, obviously alcoholic beverages, uh, you know, wine, beer, mead, um, uh, uh, etc. And, you know, really in every part of the world, Fermentation is, um, uh, you know, also well known. So if you went to, uh, you know, if you went to China or if you went to West Africa, you you would find that fermentation is, you know, similarly prominent in people's diets, you know, if in different, uh, you know, specific manifestations. So, I mean, and fermentation, I guess,
0: when you look at it, when you said in China or in native cultures here or, or in old Europe or Africa, I mean, that had to do with being able to preserve food. Keep it alive, right?
1: Well, that was, that was one of the, you know, main um, um, utilitarian benefits of, of, of fermentation, certainly. I mean, food preservation, I mean, for us in the 21st century, you know, our perspectives on food preservation, you know, have really been warped by the technology that, that, that we have. And, you know, I would imagine most of the people listening to this, you know, have a fermentation slowing device in their kitchen. That's what a refrigerator is. Um, but, you know, if you look worldwide, you know, in, in 2015, you know, most, Households on planet Earth do not have a refrigerator right. uh, uh, in them. So, you know, this technology of you know how we have learned to effectively preserve food without the benefit of refrigeration, you know, is definitely still relevant. Um, you know, and there's no guarantee that we're always going to have access to the kind of you know cheap energy that we have now, so that everyone will be able to have a refrigerator, um, you know, in their homes in the future. So, I mean, fermentation has been a very, very practical art. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, people hear about microorganisms and food and it makes many people, uh, you, you know, sort of wince in horror. <laughs> and horror. Um, and, and you know, they're mostly thinking about, you know, let's say the forgotten food at the back of their refrigerator, you know, and they're witnessing microbial transformation happening when they're cleaning the refrigerator. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality that, that we now understand is that all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by elaborate communities of microorganisms. So, except in the case of food that is dried or food that is frozen, you know, microbial transformation is an inevitability. And so, you know, my, you know, theory as to, you know, why fermentation is practiced in every part of the world is that, you know, there's this inevitability to microbial transformation, but we can guide what direction it goes into. So, you know, rather than having microorganisms, uh, you know, decompose food into a disgusting mess that nobody would want to put into their mouths, you know, people, you know, learned through observation and trial and error how to, you know, sort of harness this invisible, you know, life force that's present in our food in order to derive various kinds of practical benefits, you know, from Producing alcohol to preserving food to detoxifying foods, making things that might otherwise be poisonous or toxic safe to eat, to uh, um, uh, making foods easier to digest or making the nutrition the the, the nutrients more easily uh, bioavailable bioavailable, and finally flavor. I mean, right. if you walk into a gourmet food store anywhere and look around, you know it turns out that the things you're looking at and the things you're smelling and the things you might want to taste, you know, are Almost all products of fermentation, and it's because fermentation creates these strong, compelling flavors. I guess the, the, the
0: fermentation
1: for, for, depends on your ethnic
0: origin, but 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 I mean, you, I remember I've heard you say before that your, your first love of fermentation were pickles. This is true, kosher pickles. Yeah, <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in New York City and, you know, my grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe and, um, um, you know, the the Eastern European, you know, Jewish culture that exists in, in New York City, you know, certainly brought the pickles and, and many other culinary traditions of Eastern Europe, you know, with them. And, you know, that's certainly the flavor that first caught my attention. Um, you know, what got me first practicing fermentation is that I moved from New York to rural, 20, rural Tennessee 22 years ago um, and I started keeping Keeping a garden. And the first year that I was gardening, um, you know, I was such a naive New York kid, it never occurred to me that, you know, in a garden, um, you know, all of the cabbages that you plant, um, uh, uh, you know, are going to be ready around the same time. And so the first season I was gardening, when I was faced with a row of ripe cabbages, you know, I thought I'd better learn how to make sauerkraut. And that's what sort of, you know, led me into. uh, a, a practice of fermentation. But sure, I mean, people from different parts of the world would have, you know, conjured different images right. when, when, they, when they think about fermentation. Um, you know, I, I recently uh, uh, taught a series of workshops in Alaska uh, earlier this summer. And, um, you know, human settlement in the far northern reaches of, of the world would be utterly impossible without fermentation. And, you know, the survival food for, you know, the residents of the Arctic region are fermented fish and fermented marine mammals, and you know, without without those foods, you know, there's no way that people ever could have uh, uh, settled, uh, you know, in in that harsh climate.
0: So, so, I mean, we are, I mean, human. I mean, fermentation is as old as we are.
1: Uh, well, fermentation is older, Old, older than we are. Than we are. Yeah, just about yeah, making yeah, sure. I mean, fermentation is, is a natural phenomenon. It d- doesn't require uh, uh, human intervention. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, anyone who's ever, you know, harvested a bunch of berries, you know, once in a while you pick a berry and put it in your mouth and you realize, oh, that's already fermented. It, it's just <laughs> right. a, it's a natural phenomenon that, you know, certainly predates uh, uh, humans. And there's a lot of very interesting documentation of different kinds of, you know, insects, birds, animals being drawn to the smell of Fermenting fruit, and you know, and enjoying the buzz, and and in in our in our evolution, you know, we evolved with the enzymes to be able to digest alcohol. So, um, you know, I mean, it it certainly is part of you know our deep evolutionary past. the, the, The the just the fact of fermentation, you know, what what's really unique to humans is that. You know, we have created vessels and, you know, we have, you know, figured out, uh, um, you know, techniques for, you know, taking this natural phenomenon and, you know, applying it, making it, you know, work, you know, for, you know, our specific benefit.
0: Yeah. And thinking about it that way, we also have this world where we are terrified of bacteria. So every time you turn around, you have to wipe your hands and wash them so the antibacterial soap and everything else is like – to kill bacteria around your body. We have this war going on now.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, it is a war. And I, I mean, I refer to this as the war on bacteria. And, you know, in fact, one of the things that really got me interested in fermentation education and, 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 and sharing information about fermentation with people was learning, you know, how much people uh, project their anxiety about bacteria, you know, onto these uh, uh, foods. So, you know, somebody who's learning how to make sauerkraut, which, by the way, is just the easiest, easiest, most straightforward uh, 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 food to make. Um, but, but, you know, people, People sometimes approach it with terror. You know, how can I be sure <laughs> that I have good bacteria growing in my sauerkraut and not bad bacteria that might make me sick, that might send someone to the hospital, that might kill somebody? Um, so, so a lot of people project this anxiety. The fact about sauerkraut um, and, and fermented vegetables more broadly, to include the, the 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 pickles of my youth, to include kimchi, to include the you know really disparate traditions that exist in different places. But, you know, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there have never been any documented cases of illness or food poisoning from fermented vegetables. So, you know, the, the projection of anxiety is, is, is just sort of a manifestation of, of fear. Um, and, you know, this idea that we all grew up with in the 20th century that bacteria are bad and just need to be destroyed by, by any means necessary, um, you know, turns out to be way off base. I mean, biology is really catching up and beginning to recognize, you know, just how how important bacteria are to us but um you know the emerging consensus among evolutionary biologists is that all life is descended from bacteria. The flip side of that is that no life, no form of life, has ever lived without bacteria. And in in our own human bodies, um, biologists have come to the conclusion that our bodily cells are outnumbered by something like ten to one by bacteria that we're host to. And these bacteria aren't parasites or freeloaders or causing us harm. Um, you know they they actually you know facilitate our existence and well being and we couldn't possibly live without them. And, you know, they enable us to digest food and assimilate nutrients. They actually synthesize nutrients for us. What we think of as our immune system is mostly the work of bacteria. Um, You know, in the last few years, there have been incredible new findings, you know, that serotonin and other chemical compounds that, you know, determine our brain function and our neurological function, you know, are actually regulated by gut bacteria in ways that we don't fully understand. And, you know, our liver function is related to gut bacteria and really every aspect of our, you know, physiology and um, um, functioning are related to bacteria. And yet, as you say, you know, we all have, uh, you know, well, the war on bacteria is chemical warfare at a certain level. It's antibiotic drugs, it's antibacterial cleansing products, it's the chlorine in our water systems. And um, you know, as a result of this chemical exposure, you know, we all have diminished biodiversity. You know, we, we generally think of biodiversity as something, you know, out there. Um, you know, um um, um you know, whales and tigers and <laughs> and that's important biodiversity. But you know, biodiversity also exists within us. Um and it's an important aspect of our being. And so, you know, I think we need to, you know, counter this war on bacteria with, um, uh, you know, an embrace of bacteria because, you know, really the, 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 the thing that protects us from the very limited range of bacteria that can make us sick. You know, are the healthy communities of bacteria which generally thrive w- within us. And there's really, you know, nothing we can do to make ourselves more vulnerable to bacterial uh, uh, illness than to continually be, you know, killing off and diminishing the biodiversity of the bacteria uh, inside of us. So that's one of the. You know, really great qualities of of fermented foods, or let's say of a subset of fermented foods—fermented foods that haven't been cooked or heated after their fermentation—is that they're ways of you know um, um, ingesting um, uh, biodiversity, you know, rebuilding biodiversity in our intestines. Yeah,
0: one of the – just as, a, as, a, as an aside, sauerkraut. One of the things that that I love watching you and reading but you were writing, but also watching in these videos, is is you literally, which is to me, one of the only ways you can really cook or do things. Your hands are in it. You like getting your hands in it.
1: Oh yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, for me, you know, any, any kind of food preparation, I'm 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 very tactile about it. Um, and actually, la- la- last night at the event uh, 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 that we had, there was um, um, a woman who uh, works with school kids here in Baltimore at the um, uh, you know at, at a garden that the that the. I guess the school district maintains, um, but she was telling me about her um, uh, uh, sauerkraut experiences with kids, and it 's all about the tactile you know i mean when, once kids have their hands in it you know they're they're kind of invested in it, like they want to know when it 's going to be ready and when they when they can try it, and right, it and right it becomes something that's that's exciting and interesting to them um. Um, but no, I mean I'm 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 very committed to uh, to, to to using my my hands and um, you know in in Korean cuisine you know they talk about the hand taste that food has, um, mm, uh, really know, and that that's the you know ju- just the intangible qualities that come from you know its handling by whoever is is preparing the food. Did you eat meat by the way? Yeah, sure. I'll, I mean I'm an omnivore. That's what I, I, thought I, I, I was I just enjoy, it, yeah. I, I, I enjoy
0: all kinds of foods. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about that. I've Last night, just making these turkey burgers, and that come up with a brand new recipe, and was actually being able to put your hands inside the burger and all the sauce mm-hmm. to put them together. It's the way, it just felt like this was the way you're supposed to do it, yeah. and not just well,
1: and I mean, I think, I, I think that you know this is another interesting manifestation of the war on bacteria. This you know idea that it's bad for people's hands to to be on the food, and for the most part, in restaurants and in you know commercial food production, um, um, you know that 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 is you know looked down upon. <laughs> And uh, and 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 forbidden, um, but uh, but I think it's really it's 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 an important connection to the food, and you know I mean I think hygiene is certainly important and making sure that you wash your hands before you're right. you're handling the food, but um, you know like assuming that you do that, I mean like I don't think that there's any um, you know added safety risk by by handling the food.
0: I agree. And by the way, there's, there's another aside. You know, you're in Baltimore where you're we're sitting now. Is actually one of the sauerkraut capitals of the planet.
1: Okay, I, I'm, tell me more.
0: This is a city because of German immigrants that brought sauerkraut to Baltimore, and but what happened here? It went all across the ethnic cultures, so that every culture in Baltimore—the black culture, the Jewish culture, all the cultures in Baltimore—have adopted sauerkraut as part of their diet, and every Thanksgiving table. Because I've talked to people around the country; they've never heard of this before. But every Thanksgiving table, no matter what ethnicity it is and who's mixing there, is sauerkraut. This oh, is okay. sauerkraut. This is sauerkraut central. you right. so you should feel at that, home. That's here. good to know.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what, what? What a beautiful tradition it is. Well, it is. It is. I thought my Thanksgiving table was the only one that had Thanksgiving, <laughs> that had uh, sauerkraut on it. All over Baltimore. All over Baltimore.
0: <laughs> sauerkrauts everywhere. So um, (laughs) I just had to throw that out since you were here. But uh, I did take a step backwards for a moment because you, you had an interesting sojourn in your own getting to this place. You spent, I mean, you actually started your young life out as a policy analyst in New York City, right? This is
1: true. I, 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 I mean, I, I was raised in New York City. Um, you know, I ended up working uh, in municipal government. I was, um, I, I worked in the Manhattan Borough President's Office, um, um, you know, under a Manhattan Borough President named Ruth Messenger, who was a oh, wonderful yeah, sure. person. And, um, um, and, uh, and I mean, I found that work really, uh, um, you know, r- really I- exciting for for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, almost 25 years ago in 1991, I had a, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, an event that sort of like shifted everything in my life, which is that I, I tested HIV positive and it really changed my perspective on. You know a, a lot of aspects of life, but certainly on the career that I was leading and i I sort of walked around in a daze for six months, you know just thinking, "Wow, something big has to change in my life um you know this this really isn't isn 't working and um you know during that time, I just sort of randomly met some people who lived in this community in Tennessee. It sounded very intriguing. I went and I visited them, and a, a year later, I found myself um You know, leaving my apartment, leaving my job and, um, you know, moving to this community in rural Tennessee. And I've I've lived in Tennessee ever since. I stayed at the community for 17 years and now I live down the road from the community. But, you know, that that is the context in which I started my exploration of fermentation. You know, I thought that, um, you know, eating good quality, fresh, organic food, drinking good spring water. You know, I I just thought like, you know, good living would uh, would would keep me healthy. And it has. Well, I mean, it it has and it hasn't. I mean, you know, certainly I feel I feel great right now. Um, I mean, I've been on, you know, uh, antiretroviral yeah. drugs since uh, 1999. And, you know, I really like to be clear that, you know, fermented foods are not a cure for HIV. Um, you know, they're not necessarily a cure for cancer. They're not necessarily a cure for diabetes. Um, but I also, at the same time, I feel like they have played a huge role in, you know, just my overall um, uh, uh, well-being. And... Um, you know that's the thing is you can't expect you know any particular food to be a cure for you know a particular disease like that's really unrealistic and we live in a culture where you know often um you know people just want a magic bullet you know our model is a pill that you can pop and you know if you can get that kind of um um you know uh, a total transformation from a a single food you know people you know what is that what is the superfood that's gonna 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 change everything and i mean i think sauerkraut and other fermented foods you know you know, we could think of them as 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 superfoods if if we want to, but you know they're not cures for particular diseases. However, you know, incorporating these kinds of live bacterial cultures, building biodiversity in the gut, can definitely improve digestion, improve overall immune uh, uh, function, um, possibly improve mental health, and. That's huge. And, you know, uh, you know whether, whether you're living with some kind of a chronic disease, whether you're, you know, facing an acute health crisis, whether you're, you know, just experiencing the um, effects of aging like most of us are, or whether you're the healthiest specimen in the world, um, you know, those kinds of enhancements can, can definitely improve your life.
0: And it's interesting. When you moved to Tennessee, um, as someone who also spent some time in communes back in the day— this place that you moved to, Short Mountain, yeah. and was a consciously gay, consciously queer commune of men and then men and women coming together to live apart and away from the straight world and to kind of create something brand new. At least that's what I've read, which I found really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a queer commune. I mean, that's a pretty it's – a, it's a pretty unusual concept. Yeah. Um, and Not a common uh, one. It, it is not a common one. And, you know, I mean, for the most part, you know, the, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people who have grown up in, in um, remote rural areas, you know, have gotten out of them as fast as they yes. could and moved to the cities where they could find, you know, community and, uh, and support. So I feel, you know, incredibly lucky to have, you know, found a, you know, a, a supportive community in, in a rural area. It turns out, you know, I love living in the country. I love being outside. I love um, gardening. I love having an active life, um, and um, and I really appreciate being able to do that in a uh, in in a, in a supportive context. And um, you know, I mean, my experience has been um, you know mostly positive in terms of you know interaction with um, you know my neighbors and people who I, who I've met in in the area, and. Um, You know, I mean, I've I've never, you know, particularly sought to sort of, um, you know, live in a bubble and, and, um, you know, in isolation from, um, uh, uh, you know, from from the world that wasn't the same as me. Um, So, uh, um, you know, but it's important to me to have, um, you know, sort of supportive, simpatico people around. And it's interesting that that
0: the way you chose to lead your life and what you – getting into fermentation, getting into growing food – building your own life for you and others around you, the the celebrity you received, the books sending you across the globe to kind of teach it, was not part of a plan. It just kind of exploded, is that, is what it felt like. Is that, yeah, yeah, oh, right? oh
1: absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I definitely, you know, I, I, I definitely kind of dropped out. You know, I mean, I... Um, <laughs> um, um I, you know I, I I moved down there you know not with the idea that I was like picking up another career or that like right. oh okay i'm going to become a an expert on fermentation and and write books and and become a teacher i mean I really fell into that you know the you know i mean people who you know, I mean, people who sort of consciously choose, you know, sort of a back to the land lifestyle, um, you know, generally get involved in, you know, all kinds of, you know, um, basic transformational activities, you know, whether it's, you know, producing food or, you know, raising animals that, that are, you know, part of the the, the food system or, um, um, you know, or whether it's fermentation and, and, you know, actually, um, you know, the the first crock that I was using, I I found in in our barn. So, you know, somebody who, you know, somebody who preceded me, you know, either on the commune or among the people who the the homesteaders who were living there earlier, um, you know, was also experimenting with fermentation. This is, was not a, you know, sort of unique thing, to do Um, because once you're producing food you need to start thinking about practical issues like how to preserve it Um, and so you know I I just sort of you know fell into you know making sauerkraut then that led me me into making what are called country wines um, elderberry blackberry wines like that Um, you know then I got into um, uh, uh, keeping a sourdough then I started uh, reading about some of the Asian ferments and I learned how to make miso and you know I just sort of became obsessed with all things fermented and um, you know because my work was really you know service within the the community, um, you know centered on growing food and uh, cooking food, um, you know f- fermentation just sort of you know fit right into the work that I was doing within the community and um and then I got a reputation. My friends started teasing me and calling me Sandor Kraut. And, um, and then I got invited <laughs> right. to teach a sauerkraut making workshop uh, at another community an hour away. And, you know, I did that in 1998 and realized that, that that was really great. People, you know, there were a lot of people who were very mystified by this phenomenon of fermentation and had a million questions about it. And um, you know, that became an annual event for me. And then one year I missed it and I decided to, to write a little zine so that I could be present even though I wasn't able to be there. And then the zine gave me the idea that I could write a book about this. And then the book led me into more teaching. And um, I mean, I have no formal background in fermentation. I mean, certainly I didn't study food science or microbiology or culinary arts or, or anything like that. Um, so, you know, my education has been experiential education, but you know, since I since my first book came out, Wild Fermentation in two thousand and three, um, you know, what began as a book tour to promote my book has sort of like led led me into a a life as an itinerant teacher, and you know, one of the great things for me has been you know getting to meet people. You know, either who um, you know have, have been doing this all their life and and have you know that level of experience, um, or immigrants from different places who are you know missing ferments of their homelands and and tell me about about them. Um, you know, other you know fermentation experimentalists like myself who have experimented widely and have um, you know uh, uh, insights or or ferments I haven't heard of to share. So I mean, I, I just I, I just keep getting to learn about new ferments. So. So, um, uh, you, you know, as it turns out, you know, fermentation is just this nearly infinite realm, um, you know, where where there's always new things to learn.
0: So where do we, we have to go? It's, can you just, I'm just curious with your last ferment. That you learned that you discovered that you played with it excited you that the last thing that you
1: Well sure. I mean I I I mean I can tell you exactly what that is right. because I've been I've been a little bit obsessed for um um you know the last year or so with this um Persian yoga yogurt soda. Call I I can't pronounce it very well I'm embarrassed to do this on the radio It's called Dur. I'm sure you, you you're gonna have an Iranian listener my personal yeah, yeah. I mean, listeners <laughs> will say whether Iranian say it's right or not um, But 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 it's this like carbonated yogurt soda wow. incredibly delicious um, You know most of the contemporary Persian cookbooks that I that I've uh, uh, looked at You know if they have a recipe for it at all it just says add carbonated water to yogurt and I mean certainly that's one way to do it But I mean I knew that that's not a traditional way of doing it because, you know, carbonated water, you know, is only as old as tanks of carbon dioxide. And that's, you know, really pretty much a 20th century um, um, idea. But, you know, I finally met somebody who had studied Persian cuisine and spent time in Iran and told me how simple it is to make uh, a douche a more traditional way. And it's simply to take a little bit of bulgur uh, uh, wheat, um, you know, like the recipe, the, the recipe that I've developed used about two tablespoons of bulgur wheat, cover it with about a Half a cup of water. When I say water, I mean dechlorinated water. Um, So if you're, you know, taking it out of your, you know, tap in, uh, um, you know, in a municipal system, you want to at least leave it for overnight so that the water can evaporate. Even better if you can filter it. you know, or use some uh, well or spring water that's not chlorinated, um, um, and you just leave that for a couple of days, and it just starts to get a little bit bubbly. I mean, as the way the way the guy who taught me how to make it described it, it blooms. Mm. Um, and then what you do is you strain out the bulgur and use that liquid that's bubbly that that already has you know carbohydrates from the bulgur, you know infused into it, and then you just add that into yogurt, about a quart of yogurt, shake it up, seal it in a in in, in a bottle that can uh, uh, hold some pressure um, leave it out for about 24 hours and um, and it will become yogurt soda and then you can refrigerate it and drink mm. it cold and it is so flavor delicious is and refreshing I, I mean I don't flavor it at all I just, just I just yeah. have like plain yogurt uh, 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 flavor uh, or maybe I'll put a little pinch of salt in it but certainly you could add any kind of you know fruit flavoring or vanilla flavor or mm. or whatever you like but um, you know I just like the flavor of yogurt myself so so that, that, that's one you know sort of new new one yeah. that i've be- become pretty um, um obsessed with I, I also um I learned last year how to make i, I mean really the the best and simplest um gluten free bread that, that 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 i've had, oh, I had and, and, and 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 what you do is basically you take some um, um uh, buckwheat. Um, not toasted buckwheat. Raw buckwheat works much better for this. Um, And you um, uh, uh, soak it in water um the thing about dry foods is when you when you soak them in water it it awakens dormant microorganisms. So all grains you know are covered with yeast and lactic acid bacteria and other kinds of bacteria but they're not active because they lack water. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you soak them in water it it awakens the dormant uh, organisms and and they can begin to uh, ferment. So you simply soak the bulgur um uh, and then the next morning you um, uh, strain out that uh, the the soaking water and then put it in a blender with a little bit of fresh water and just blend it into a slurry and that 's the batter that you make the dough out of and you add a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of salt you know leave that for about twenty four hours to ferment and it 'll rise a little bit and then you um um, you know, grease a pan, uh, like, a, like a, a loaf pan, um, uh, put some like sesame seeds or something in. just makes it much easier to get the loaf out at the end. Pour that batter in, let it sit for a couple of hours and rise, then, and then bake it in the oven. Mm. Um, so I'm continually learning new things. And, I, and I'm actually in the middle of a revision of my first book about fermentation, Wild, Wild Fermentation. fermentation. Um, and actually the two things that I've just mentioned will be in, in the revised edition that will be coming out next year. Well, I'm
0: going to listen to my own tape and go try it myself <laughs> 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 this is great uh, I'm so happy the Katz that uh, Friends brought you to Baltimore uh, to hang out and you can get to the studio here it's really been a pleasure to meet you at last and have you in the in the studio to talk.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's great to be here in Baltimore. It's great to get to meet you in person. Um, let me just plug my website. I have a website, uh, right, wildfermentation.com. And uh, I've got links to all kinds of you know fermentation-related uh, uh, resources uh, uh, out there on the World Wide Web. Um, you know, I post where my upcoming workshops are. Um, I sell my books on my website. And I um, uh, just want to make sure people uh, uh, know about that. And, it'll- and can I also take a moment? To to, to plug my hosts uh, uh, here in Baltimore? Yeah, sure. So, okay. So these are, uh, you know, former students of mine, uh, 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 Shane and Megan Carpenter, who uh, have started a business here, uh, Hex Ferments. And, um, you know, yesterday I had the chance to, you know, try a lot of their different vegetable ferments and their kombuchas, um, and they're doing amazing stuff. And they're um, uh, at Belvedere Square and Just also represented street. at... Um, uh, a number of the farmers' markets about time uh, around town, and um, you know they're making really, really wonderful uh, uh, ferments. So if you feel like you don't have the time to make them yourselves, which you can, um, um, you know that's that's another uh, uh, option. No, we'll try that. I'm gonna try that place for sure.
0: Sandra great to ha- have you here. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show. Right from your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We've got to take a very brief break, but don't go away. When we come back, I talk to Tom Philpot about a bee killing pesticide that the federal courts would not allow the EPA to approve. And learn about a program introducing our young people to local chefs and healthy food. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future, right here on The Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community here in Baltimore, and also broadcast on Marvel Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. I'm joined now by one of our regular commentators here on Soundbites, Tom Philpot. Tom Philpot is the food and ag correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine and co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in North Carolina. This week he joins me to discuss his recent article, Federal Court to EPA, No, You Can't Approve That Pesticide That Kills Bees. And uh, Tom, it's been a long time. Welcome back to Soundbite's Bites and the Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Mark. So i have been writing some interesting stuff, and I, I, we co- we've been covering um, neonicotinoids a lot in this program, and the whole question of bees and and the the, the the what what's being used to protect the GMO plants, how it's affecting the environment. But it was an interesting piece you wrote that one of those in fact was taken off the shelf because of because of recent studies. What what was the story there?
2: The story there was that this product um, that is brought to us by the gigantic chemical company Dow was approved by the EPA in two thousand thirteen. And it's a new one. It's called um, Sulfoxoflora. I can barely pronounce any of these pesticides, Um So it was uh, approved by the EPA in 2013. It's been on the market widely used for soybeans and a whole bunch of uh, flour and fruit crops. And um, it turned out that, well, this, this group of beekeepers filed, filed a lawsuit um, against EPA charging that they didn't properly assess its impact on honeybees and you know if you look at if you look at the the process by which the EPA has approved all these units, there's a lot of questions and a lot of missing data and a lot of not very good studies and so I really didn't have much of, of an expectation that, that this lawsuit would, would succeed and a federal judge returned a decision just last week um, saying that the EPA had, had improperly approved of this drug and if you Dig in and read the decision. It's a really interesting look into how the EPA works with these companies and how the whole process works.
0: So what did you learn?
2: Well, so how the process works is that the companies supply studies. And so there's a particular need when you are using these kind of widely used pesticides to supply studies on how they impact pollinators. Because we're obviously in this pollinator crisis, and um, what what the judge found was that the uh, you know all of the studies were generated by the company itself. So the company is responsible for testing the product on in this case on bees, and it turned in these studies um, finding that the product didn't harm honeybees at all. But when you look at the studies, all of them were using a much lower dose. Than what Dow was asking for to for the maximum dose per acre for farmers in the field, the studies were explicitly using doses a fraction of the uh, the amount that they were actually hoping uh, farmers would use, which is just insane. It's like, what is that telling you about you know if if I say that you know this this food is not harmful at all at um, at one teaspoon a day, I, if I have a study that shows that, but then I'm trying to give you a dose of 10 teaspoons a day, then the study that I've supplied didn't really tell you anything about it at all. And that's what the, um, the that's what Dow was doing. And so the EPA's first reaction was to say, well, this isn't quite adequate. There's, you need to do some more studies. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with this, but we'll give you conditional registration. What that means is that you can go ahead and sell it, but we, we are expecting you to come up with more studies that prove, more and better studies that prove that this stuff is not harming bees. But then, and this is the part that really shocked me. Two months later, the EPA took away the conditional bit of it and just unconditionally registered this pesticide, uh, allowing it to go out into the world. And Dow never did any more studies. And so, it, you know, basically it was approved based on studies that the EPA acknowledged were, uh, were flawed and incomplete, and it just went out there. And, so, and you know, so the EPA is charged with protecting honeybees, but in this case, it, um, it you know, didn't do that at all. And so, and so the judge said no. And, um, and so what that means is that this particular pesticide will be off the market.
0: But I mean, so here they I have blocked that, but as you wrote in the article, uh, if I say this correctly... Clothiniadin and immediate al- are allowed, um, and studies were done for that. So what's the difference between that and the, this one was disallowed, the sulfofoxiflor?
2: Well, I was talking to the lawyer who who, uh, who um, defended the case for the beekeepers, um, the case that ended up winning. And what he said is that when a registration happens, it... If it if it sits around for a couple of years, it's really hard to reverse. And there actually is a lawsuit on Clipped Indiana, um which which got approved in two thousand and three. Um, and we could go we could have a whole session on the very dodgy process of re- registering that particular pesticide, which is yeah. very widely used in the Midwest. So there is a lawsuit out there. But what he said was that it's very difficult to reverse old decisions like that. And this decision ha- um, this Registration happened in 2013, and the beekeepers within two months had filed their suit. So it was a very instant reaction. Everything was very fresh, and and so the judge was more likely to take a close look at it. Whereas these old registrations that are you know more than a decade old are really hard to reverse. But what it does do this decision is it sets a precedent, uh, as he explained to me, that the you know basic thing these companies show. Is that at the doses we're using in the field, these pesticides are unlikely to kill a bunch of bees immediately. And the EPA, and you know that's probably true. It's probably true that when you spray this stuff on a soybean field or something, you're not going to instantly kill a bunch of uh, a bunch of bees. But what the judge says is that's not enough because uh, a a beehive is more than the sum of its parts. It's this super organism that if you weaken Let's say, you know, if you make every bee sort of 10% less strong, 10% weaker, 10% less resilient, maybe you didn't kill them, but you've decreased the hive health and you've made the hive more, more vulnerable to things like uh, mites and other pests that attack honeybees, uh, viruses, uh, the stress of winter. These are all stresses that a, bee, a beehive has to be resilient enough to withstand. And if you, uh, you know, it turns out that when, you, when, you, when they're exposed to these pesticides, they become less resilient. And so, what the judge is saying is that the EPA isn't demanding and getting good data on overall hive health, which is really the important question here. And so, what that means is that, A, going forward, new pesticides that come out, this precedent is in place where the EPA might and should feel. Like it has to demand more information, and if it doesn't, you know, if they don't do it, they're vulnerable to more reversals like this. And then, I also I think that in current registrations like Putnianden, it's po- it's more possible to reverse them now that the judge has said this because they really do have the same problems.
0: Uh, at the end of your article, you you wrote about the U.S. Geological Survey that you did a whole story on last year. Yeah, finding uh, neonicotinoid traces in rivers and streams that they were tested uh, tested um yeah. and they were as, as you quoted in this new article both mobile and persistent in the environment and canadians also see harms to bird and fish uh, yeah. as well so so what when i read stuff like that you know what what are people saying about its potential effect not just on birds and fish but because of them and also uh, independently to us human beings well, homo sapiens on this planet
2: yeah, I mean, I think that the, this particular class of pesticides, there's no, there's no strong evidence that it's harmful to humans.
0: Who's done the studies, though?
2: Um, I think that bit of it is pretty well accepted, even, even by critics of the, the pesticide industry. that you know, these, are basically, these are basically mimicking nicotine. And nicotine is something, it, it probably isn't the nicotine in cigarettes that's causing us trouble. It's the smoke that goes into our lungs. Nicotine probably isn't a real bad uh, poison for humans, the things that mimic it aren't aren't so bad. But I think that the real question raised by that U.S. US Geological Survey study is that these pesticides are so ubiquitous in our agriculture. They're so ubiquitous in corn and soybean fields in the Midwest, in horticulture, you know, sort of fruit and vegetable farming all up and down the East Coast. same on the West Coast. I mean, just where we have farming, we're using these things. They're getting into the water. They're getting into streams. Um, they are. Eat, they're consumed by birds. You know, they're uh, they're they're used as a seed coating often, and so birds eat the entire seed that's coated with these things. It, they're impacting ecosystems in ways that are completely unpredictable. And you know that when you, we know that when you take out certain species or cause certain species to decline, you get these cascading effects. And I think that is the sort of Russian, you know, sort of Russian relay we're playing here, is that we don't really know what the consequences are. But, you know, we're talking about something that has been common in the environment for less than a decade. And in that decade, just exploded. They, they weren't very widely used before 2003. And after 2003, you just get this dramatic expansion of them and evidence that they're harming pollinators, not just bees, but also all different kinds of sort of buzzing, pollinating insects, also birds. Um, you know, you're you're looking at potential for massive ecological ecosystem effects that are unpredictable.
0: As usual, Tom Philpot, it's always eye-opening to talk to you and you raise issues that make us rethink what we're thinking. And I'm glad you just don't sit around and, and uh, accept the paradigms uh, of environmentalists or of, of course, ag, which you don't, <laughs> All right. and bring us some real, uh, real um, original thinking. I appreciate it very much.
2: All right. Thanks
0: a lot, Mark. Thank you. Tom Philpot, Mother Jones food and agricultural reporter with us once again here on The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. We're about to learn about Days of Taste. We have in the studio with us Riva Eichner Khan, who's an organizer for Days of Taste, uh, and Wendy Jeffries, who is director of special projects and partnerships. Good to have you both here. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, so, what is Days of Taste?
3: Days of Taste is a discovery-based food program for elementary school children that brings together professional chefs, farmers, and community volunteers to introduce children to the elements of taste. And to teach them how food travels from farm to table, and basically we want kids to enjoy eating healthy food <laughs>
0: so right I understand that, no, that makes sense so, so what and I think that 's been a, a a project that many people have worked at in different public schools and other schools around the state and country. so what form does that literally take inside the classroom
3: well it 's a three morning project program, and I think that we 're distinguished. By three major things. Number one, the kids learn from professionals. We actually have professional chefs, some of the best in Baltimore: um, Spike Diardi and Opie Crook from Woodbury, John Shields from Gertrude's. Lots of great chefs. We have the great farmers. The kids actually go to a farm and learn from the farmers. And then we have the community involvement. So that's one aspect. Another is that they're very, they're always doing experiments, tasting different foods, combining them, comparing them, preparing a salad themselves in groups. So that's another thing. And the last thing is that we focus on taste. So we really have the kids tasting all the time and trying different foods that are literally fresh from the farm. I mean, when they go to the farm, they yank it out of the ground and then they taste it. So it's three mornings in in elementary schools. So how many schools are you in? Uh, we're in actually about thirty six. I'd say a year because we do the program in the spring and in the fall at different schools in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Howard County, and we just started in Harford County.
0: So how, so so how does this exist? I mean, how do you make this thing happen? So if you're if you're director of uh, <laughs> social projects and partnerships, that's part of what you do, right?
4: It is. Um, yeah, we kind of do it in a few different ways. One is we are lucky enough to have amazing chefs and farms farmers as reva uh, mentioned who volunteer their time and their effort and a lot of times provide products for us to use you know the chefs bring a lot of the ingredients the kids get to taste so um it doesn't happen without with those folks it also happens when we have a lot of schools and principals who are really interested in the program and want to bring us in and so we have without you know their ability to find time in the crazy school day to let us come in with our with our boxes and our baskets of food um, doesn't happen and then obviously um, because it's free to students and schools right now we have to look for funding obviously to fund other things like getting the buses so they can go to the farm um, getting sure all the materials that are there so they can you know we have to try the the experiments you know that we bring powders and jelly beans and all these kind of things, and so those are not free unfortunately, so we do a lot of grants, we look for funding that way, and we get a variety of, of funding, both public and private, to do this
0: so and so and when you do these for three days, what do you what do you expect the kids to walk away with?
3: A lot of things each one takes something different back. some of them are just so amazed when they go to the farm and they see how big it is. A lot of them love meeting a chef. Chefs are rock stars of today, and they will want to be a chef. We want them, though, to come away understanding that what all these things that they learn are healthy in school because we complement the school curriculum. So all these things that they learn are healthy actually taste good. They kind of think it's mutually exclusive. And I think when they do Days of Taste, it's a lot of fun, and they're in control, and they're working with their friends and a professional chef, and they saw the food and the farm. It all comes together, and they say, hey, you know, this is pretty good. Do they cook? They actually make a salad. So we don't we don't try to bring in – you know, we do it in the classroom, so we have to be pretty flexible. We bring in the bowls and the whisks. They all feel like they're, you know – They I think they're cooking. Yeah. They, they really – In fourth grade, that's cooking.
4: That
0: yeah. is cooking. That you, that's cooking. You watch <laughs> it happen? Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, and they really get into it. And I think, I mean, that's one of the things that they walk away from is that I can do this. You know, they're really proud of what they're doing. And one thing that we just started this last semester um, in the schools, which I think is one of the biggest takeaways, is in a couple of schools, we were lucky enough to um, give them kind of take home salad in a bag and they would literally go home um, with a salad ingredients and a recipe and they would sort of show their families how to do this and they would actually cook it or make it at home and so they got to really show off what they had learned in this three-day program to their families and have their families enjoy it Um, and we got some really good feedback both from the family members and the students that this was a pretty cool experience and you know I I think you know we think oh it's just a salad Um, you know we make it at home all the time but for a lot of these students it's not something that they do all the time, and so be able to a to be able to do it in their house, but also to show their skills off and talk about well, when the chef told me how you whisk, this is how you whisk. You know that kind of interaction um, is something that we we're really excited to try out this semester, and have seen a, you know it be very successful, and so we're hoping to continue that moving forward. So it's sort of that what we're tra- one of the things we're trying to walk away with have the students walk away with is that this is not a one time thing. Um, but trying to sort of begin to help them understand that these are, these are things that they could choose to do and change their behaviors or continue behaviors they're already doing.
3: Um, and it's a pretty cool thing to do.
0: How do people find out about getting to this place?
3: Well, they can go online to www.farm2chefmd, as in Maryland.com. dot com. Um, Or if they're interested in Days of Taste, they can email at daysoftasteinfo at gmail.com. And we'll be happy to... Tell sure. them anything they want to know, and if they want to see Days of Taste firsthand, just send info. To, send an email to that, and we will invite them because Days of Taste actually is starting one week from today. <laughs> and we and every, and every school needs volunteers. Yes, every school needs volunteers, but they are welcome to come and just watch it. We won't just rope them in to volunteer <laughs> if they if they just want to come and stop by. It's only the morning, so.
0: Well, we'll put all this on our website, and I think it's very exciting. I really am curious to see what you all do in the classroom and come check that out.
4: We'd love to have you. Yeah. uh,
0: And October 5th is the day.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: And we'll put it on our website. But, again, to get tickets, you go to
4: www.farm2chefmd.com.
0: So and this I'm I'm looking forward to this. I I think it's going to be phenomenal watching these days. I love watching kids do this kind of stuff in classrooms. I think it's really important work. Um, And I've been looking forward to you all coming in. Uh, you just uh, heard Riva Eichner-Khan, Kahn, is the organizer for Days of Taste, and Wendy Jeffries, who is the director of special projects and partnerships. Good to have you both in the studio. Good luck with this. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thanks. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media made possible in part by the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Marva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Calvin Perry, Manifa Wilson, and Sienna Greaves. Our theme music is by Warren Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes of Soundbites at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, W-E-A-A, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Del Marva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.